What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The title of my message today is The Death of the Promised Messiah. We've looked at his birth, we've looked at his ministry. But now we know he did not come just to stay in that stable or to stay in that manger, but he came to die a death that he did not deserve to die. And before we get into that today, I want to just share with you, I know many of you have been asking about my trip, and and I've tried to reserve um, sharing my trip so I can use it for my sermons. And so if you would be patient with me, I do appreciate with that. But I'm sure you've been asking and wondering where I went and and I have a, a couple pictures I want to share with you. The, the first one I want to share with you is this picture right here. And yes, it is an archway that leads into the cemetery. So yes, I went all the way to London to hang out at the cemetery. And I know that sounds very morbid to you, but it, it was very purposeful. And I promise you, I don't go every Saturday night and hang out the cemeteries in Roanoke. But there was a specific purpose. And it might sound morbid, but sometimes it is important that we go and visit a place where bodies are laid to rest or ashes are spread because it gives us a fresh perspective on life. And as I began to walk through the cemetery, I began to notice how large these monuments were. And of course, it would lead me to the next picture, this monument. And this picture does not really do justice to how large it is, but it is very large, four-sided, contains not just Charles Spurgeon, but also Susanna Spurgeon. And there, as I was sitting or standing face to face with the reality that one day my life will come to an end, I was reminded that everything that has a beginning has an ending. Every life that begins will one day walk through the doorway we call death. But the interesting thing is, is that the average life that is lived, your life, my life, and most people's life, will not be noted long after their life is lived. What I mean by that is sure, maybe your children, if you're blessed to have children, and maybe your grandchildren, if you're blessed to have grandchildren, or maybe possibly your great-grandchildren, if you're blessed to have those, will remember your existence. But the moment you walk through that doorway called death, as soon as the generation that you're a part of ceases to exist, most people will forget about your existence. But there will be some who will outlive their lifetime like the one right here, Charles Spurgeon. And of course, I'm not here to talk to you about this man. And he was just a man. But he was a man that God raised up to use to speak long after he was dead. But I submit to you today that the influence and legacy that Spurgeon left in the late 1800s pales into comparison of a greater preacher, of a greater uh, expositor of Scripture, and that is Jesus Christ. And today, my friends, I want to zoom in and focus on the event that Jesus lived to do, and that was to die. Spurgeon lived 57 years. Jesus lived 33 years, and more was accomplished in his lifetime of 33 years uh, out of any other lifetime that has ever existed. You see, the Old Testament figures like Moses and Abraham and David and all the other greats in the Old Testament all foreshadowed and pictured this great life 
named Jesus. The apostles like Paul and Peter and James and John and the others, as they write their letters and as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write their gospels, it's pointing us back to the life that revolutionized culture, revolutionized time, and revolutionized the world, and that is Jesus. And as we think about his death, as we think about this time of the year, the thought that I want to just engrave into your mind again is prophecy affirms Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. If you leave this Christmas season with that one statement out of all these messages, then I would consider my job done well. So remember this. Let it sink into your heart that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the central theme that Messiah would be born in a manger, but that he would not stay there, but he would go to the cross and give his life a ransom for the sins and sinners of this world. But my question I want to ask today is simply this. What does prophecy teach us about the death of the promised Messiah? I'm glad you asked. I want to begin today in Isaiah 53. But the first thought I want to share with you is the Messiah would be silent before his accusers. In fact, it's not an exhaustive list that we're going through with all these prophecies, and it's not an exhaustive list of the references that I have on the screen behind me. But you're welcome to take note of all of these. Of course, in Psalm 35, we see this. But in Isaiah 53, where we just read in verses 7 and 8, the Bible literally declares to us right here that he would not open his mouth when his accusers accused him of his so-called wrongdoing. Can you just imagine for just one second here that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who spoke the universe into existence, Colossians chapter 1, is very, very clear that Jesus is the one that created the universe. And we know that the Father and the Spirit were all involved. The whole triune God was involved, but Jesus had a specific purpose in creation. The one who gave you life, the one who gave you sight, the one who gave you ears to hear. In Matthew 27 and Mark 15, we read that when they asked him about his accusers, he said nothing. But my friends, out of all the people that have ever existed, he was the one who had the right to speak, and he laid that right down. If he would have spoken, he could have convinced all those that were present that he was innocent and did not deserve to die. But I submit to you today that the reason why he did not speak was so that he could go to that cross and die the death for you and for me. And just by means of application, there are times in your life where you'll be falsely accused. It's going to happen. I've been falsely accused. I'm sure you have. But if you haven't been yet, it will come to pass. And there are times when you should just remain silent before your accusers. The second thing I want to share with you today about prophecy and about the death of the Messiah. It's not just how he would be silent before his accusers, but this Messiah would be smitten and spat upon. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Micah chapter 5. 
Micah chapter 5 is like the pinnacle of the Bible verses that that reveal to us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in verse number 2. But we often overlook verse 1 because of the emphasis of verse 2. But in Micah, Micah is is to the right in, in the Old Testament there. If you just turn to the right in the Minor Prophets, you will eventually find it in there. Micah chapter 5. Micah is right after Jonah, if that helps you, and right before Nahum. Micah chapter 5 and and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. And then check this out now. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Here is a very clear prediction that the Messiah would be smitten, and here he would be smitten upon his face. And of course, verse number two highlights that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was the place where Messiah was born. And we praise God for that. But in Matthew chapter 26, in fact, if you want to turn to this one, Matthew chapter 26, I want to read to you what the New Testament says about this scene. Matthew chapter 26 and verses 67 and 68. The Bible says in Matthew 26 and verse 67, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. Let's pause right there. I hope that you've never spat in somebody's face before. It's a, the, probably the most horrible thing that anybody could do, most offensive thing you could do to somebody else. But if you could just imagine in your mind right now, Jesus is standing before these people. He's not saying any words about those that are accusing him. And he's not only allowing them to falsely accuse him, but he's allowing them to hawk a loogie, if you will, and spit in his face. But then it says, and after they spit in his face, then they begin to slap him. They begin to beat him with the palms of their hands. And as they were slapping him and beating him, they were saying, prophesy unto us, you that is called Christ, who is the one hitting you or smiting you? And if you go and you study Mark chapter 14 and 15 and John chapter 19, you will discover That in John's gospel, if my memory serves me correctly, that is the time where John cites that the prophet would would be fulfilled in these events taking place. And so here, Messiah, he he was brought before his accusers and remained silent. And then they begin to spit upon him and smite him. And we know that he would be beaten beyond measure. But this was the beginning of the beatings. May I share with you thirdly today? Just keep in your mind that here he's standing before his accusers. There before Pilate and the Sanhedrin and all those there. They're, they're smiting him and spitting upon him. But then they begin to mock him and taunt him. The third thought today is the Messiah would be mocked and taunted. There are two clear descriptions of the Messiah's gruesome death in the Old Testament. 
And it's Isaiah 53, what we just read a few moments ago, but it's in Psalm 22 is the second one. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22. Now, I know that Psalm 22 is a psalm written by David, and there are parts of Psalm 22 that is clearly about David. But hear me well today. David experienced some of these things so that it would typify and predict one day that a greater king would come and experience what David experienced. Speaking of Messiah, in fact, in Psalm 22, it speaks about a direct quotation that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. And when Jesus was on that cross, it was as if God the Father forsook him because the weight of the sins of humanity was upon his shoulders. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are so many other cool verses about prophecy in Psalm 22, but I want to draw your attention to verses 7 and 8. They mocked him, and, and I say this as respectfully as I know how, but they stripped him naked and hung him on the cross. Very uh, uh, embarrassing. And verse 7 of Psalm 22 says, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. There, public humiliation to the most extreme by the Roman government. They're not just to strip him naked, but they're to hang him on a cross. And all, maybe asides, his family and his followers were mocking him and taunting him and tempting him. Come down if you are the son of God. But it says in Psalm 22 verse 7, they shoot out the lip they shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. In Matthew chapter 27 and Luke 23, we read the fulfillment of this prophecy. And I want to read to you Matthew 27. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to, or you can just listen. Matthew 27, verse 39 and verse 40 the Bible speaks that there Jesus, is, he's, he's been crucified, he, he's been beaten beyond all measure, and there he's hanging on the cross, and the sign, this is the king of the Jews, is, 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 is above him, and, and, and they're passing by him. Verse 39 says, they reviled him, wagging their heads. In fact, I can just see them as a bunch of filthy dogs just being ravenous or wolves upon the Messiah in this scene. And they said this, they said, thou that destroys the temple and buildest it in three days, why won't you come down from the cross and save yourself? They said, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. There they were mocking him and taunting him. But fourthly, fourthly today, the Messiah would die by crucifixion. Today, our capital punishment system is a lot more civilized than it was in the Roman Empire. But in Psalm 22, and in Zechariah chapter 12, and in Isaiah 53, to name a few places, we read the brutality of the death 
that Jesus went through. After he would have these public hearings and this public trial, they would take him and they would scourge him, as you have heard. And there they would beat him in such a way that he was unrecognizable by his own mother and his brothers. Then they made him carry the cross down the, that road there to die the death that he did not deserve to die. When we think about these passages in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and John 19, where it's clear descriptions of, of, of Isaiah 53, of Psalm 22, of Zechariah 12, of all these different places, we realize that, that it'd have to be very ignorant not to see that this was Messiah, that this was the, the promised one of old that all the Old Testament prophets spoke about. And you'd have to be spiritually blind. And I submit to you today, that the only way for somebody right now in our culture to not affirm that Jesus is Messiah and Savior of the world is for them to be blinded and God has not removed the scales from their eyes just yet. It's the only way. We know that Satan is at work. He is the prince of the power of the air. And he, in a sense, is trying to do his best to blind the people of this world. And there's a new generation. In fact, my generation, a generation to follow, has become so blinded to the truth of the gospel that it is just a fairy tale that our great-grandparents read about and believed. It is no longer adopted as a sincere, honest truth that is historically verified. But I submit to you today that if you deny the, histori the historicity of Jesus' existence, you've denied one of the greatest existence ever. In fact, there is more evidence that Jesus was alive and well on the earth than there is for George Washington. <laughs> and we can easily affirm George Washington lived. In fact, I would go as far to say that there's more, there's more evidence of Jesus' existence than your existence and my existence right now. And I'm looking at you face to face, and you're looking at me face to face. To deny Jesus is to deny the greatest historical event that changed the entire globe and universe. Even the skeptic, the New Testament scholar in North Carolina, Bart Ehrman, who is literally an apostate, affirms that Jesus did exist. So today, my friends, this Jesus that we're talking about is not a figment of our imaginations, or as Richard Dawkins likes to say, that people like you and me as Christians, he says we are hallucinating. And I would like to say this, that normally speaking, when somebody makes an accusation, they are generally guilty of the accusation they made. And so today, people like Richard Dawkins who say we are hallucinating are actually the ones who are hallucinating because they are ignoring the facts that Jesus actually existed. Josephus, a Jewish historian who had no need to affirm his existence, affirms to us shortly after Jesus' generation that Jesus was a historical, verifiable person. And today I believe by faith that he was much more than just a historical figure. That he was Messiah who lived to die our death on the cross 2,000 years ago. And while he was on that cross... 
The fifth thought I want to share with you is that as he looked to his right and as he looked to his left, after he was beaten and hung there, he suffered with sinners. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we just read this moments ago, the very last verse, verse number 12, it says, it says that he was numbered with the transgressors. And this is what scholars refer to as the moment in which Matthew 28, Mark 15, and Luke 23 reveal to us that to his right and to his left, there were these two malefactors or thieves who were criminals who deserved that punishment. But there Jesus was hanging in the middle on that tree or on that cross. And the Messiah would suffer with them. What that reminds me is that no matter what kind of pain you experience, whether it's emotional, spiritual, or physical pain, our Savior experienced pain to the same degree. And in fact, I would argue that Jesus experienced more pain when he was on that cross than all the pain that we've experienced in our lifetime. Because in that moment, it was the just for the unjust. And there Jesus gave his life a ransom for many, as Isaiah says. In fact, 1 John says that when he died there, he was not just a propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, that moment when Jesus died, he died for humanity's transgressions so that anybody who calls out to him for salvation can receive eternal life. And my friends, that is what Christmas is all about. That is the hope of Christmas. That Jesus was born, but Jesus lived a perfect life. He had three years of ministry and there to culminate of him on the cross to suffer and die with sinners. And while he was on that cross, it's not just the end. One was there mocking and taunting and scoffing him, but the other, the other received mercy and grace from Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. While it is important and and a command after salvation to be baptized, but the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Faith is the way in which we are saved. Grace is the way in which we receive that great gift. And today we should praise him for that good grace. But there in the scenes of all these different things, the sixth thought I want to share with you is, it's not just about how he'd be silent before his accusers and would be smitten and spat upon or mocked and taunted and, and crucified and suffer with sinners, but, but, but the Messiah's garments would be divided by casting lots. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a couple of dice and rolled dice before, but if you could just imagine... There, these people are taking dice, if you will, and just rolling dice, letting chance determine who receives which portion of his garments. That's what took place. And in Psalm 22, that great psalm that we've been referring to, and in verse number 18, listen to these words. They part my garments among them and cast lots Upon my vesture. And when you go and you study Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and John 19, you discover that that was done 
so that the prophet David, the psalmist David's words would come to fulfillment. I'm telling you, Jesus is quite the character. How he would not just die our death, but he would be humiliated in such a way that they would even take his clothes and try to split them amongst those who were leading him to his death. I'm sure, if I could speculate what they might have done with those clothes, is I'm sure that they might have taken and went to the marketplace and said, hey, here's the garment that Jesus, your king, wore uh, for $25. You can have this. For $2,500, you can have this. You know, it's interesting. When I went to Israel, I went to this um, gift shop in Bethlehem. It was very nice. They really marketed this place up saying, hey, this is wood from Bethlehem that you can have this nativity scene. And I walked up to this nativity scene. I was like, wow, this is it's pretty nice. And the guy walked to me and said, for you, good price. For you, good price. $15,000. I was like, man, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm not going to give you $15 for that. (laughs) But just imagine them taking his garments and using it as a means to profit their own pockets. Nobody's ever done that to me. And I would advise you, nobody probably ever will for any of us. But then, as he's on the cross, the seventh and final thought I want to share with you is the Messiah's bones would not be broken. The prophet Moses, you may not view Moses as a typical prophet, but he was. And according to my understanding, the scriptures, including the New Testament and Jesus himself, attribute Moses as to being the human penman for the first five books of the Bible, and that would include Numbers And in Numbers chapter 9 and verse number 12, listen to these words. The Bible says, They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, according to all the ordinances of the Passover they shall keep. Now this was in the context of the Passover celebration. Now that being said, I want to draw your attention to John 19. And if you would, turn to John 19 and verses 31 through 37. We're not going to read all of these, but this is the context in which the writer here, John, is referring to back in the Old Testament. And so in verse 31, the Bible speaks about how it was the day of preparation. It was this special Sabbath day, and there, they, they did not want to break his legs because it was a special Sabbath day. So the soldiers come, and they normally did that, but, but, but they did not do that to Jesus. And they, they take a spear, and they shove it into his side, and blood came out and water. And, and some doctors would, would attribute that that occurring would mean that he was clearly dead. But then in verse number 35, it says, and he's, he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. I love how John is so um, passively humble. <laughs> he's literally saying, uh, I'm the one who saw it, and, and it is very true. If you deny my eyewitness account, you, you're wrong. I love it. Anyways, he says, and he knows that he says, he, he, he knoweth that he saith true that you might believe. But then it says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Referring back to Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. A bone of him shall not 
be broken. Fascinating. This is what prophecy teaches us about this promised Messiah. Now, I know lately I've been sounding like a broken record about Charles Spurgeon. And so my apologies. I've just immersed myself into his life. But I want you to know this, that before I ever went to go see and walk through the life of Spurgeon, I first went to go see and walk through the life of Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon might be great, but he is not as great as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And no matter how great you might be in your life or me in my life, we will never compare to how amazing and how uh, awesome our Lord and Savior is. And in fact, I want to share with you two more pictures today. The first one is right here. In 2016, I was very blessed to go to Israel for essentially free with a group of pastors. And this right here is, is allegedly what they call the place of the skull, Golgotha. The second one here zooms in a little bit closer. So you can kind of see it's kind of like a skull. But this right here is about the place where Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross. And listen, I have personally been to the places where historians claim Jesus was born. I have personally seen the town of Nazareth where he grew up. I have personally walked in the region of Galilee where he served for three years. I have sailed on a boat in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on water. I have stood on the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus delivered his famous sermon. I have strolled through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed with it seemed as great uh, sweat drops of blood. I have stood in the dungeon where they imprisoned him before he died. I've traveled down the Via Dolorosa, the place where Jesus walked down that road to carry his cross to his death, where he stumbled and fell and where the other man came to help them. I have witnessed this place right here with my very own eyes, the skull called Golgotha, where our Lord was crucified. Now, I know I am nobody, but I've been to the places where Jesus has been to see them with my very own eyes. You may never see those things, and that's okay. But me and the way my mind operates, I'm a factual man. I've got to see it for myself. And today, my friends, one of these days, give God glory. You may never go to the United Kingdom. You may never go to, to Israel. But one day, for certain, not only believers, but all unbelievers will see Jesus split the eastern sky and we will all see him for who he is, Messiah, but risen from the grave. This is the death of the promised Messiah. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live.
about me I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith Keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith